this is Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello people, it's Ben here. This is a small voice, I almost forgot the name of my own podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. You already know that. I'm the one who uh, probably doesn't for some reason. But uh, should I start writing scripts again for this intro? Maybe we should have one of those sort of polls that they put on Twitter or Facebook. I Part of me thinks definitely, yes, absolutely. And the other half thinks, mm, I don't know. It's a lot of work. But anyway, I digress. Uh, this week, my guest is the fantastic Lottie Davis, and I'm going to introduce Lottie in a second. Uh, maybe first of all, I should tell you that this episode of Small Voice is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club, the monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts that brings essential limited edition and hard to find photo books to your doorstep. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal Book Club selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Whether they be long-time enthusiasts with a stock library or novices just beginning to build their collection, join up as a member and each month you will receive a new museum-quality first edition monograph to add to your shelves, hand-picked by Charcoal's team of expert curators and signed by the artist, along with a signed note card and an exclusive print. Sometimes the book of the month will be a classic title every bibliophile should own sometimes it'll be a new release from an emerging artist poised to make big waves they offer free shipping to the uk canada and the us and members also get exclusive perks such as signed copies access to rare titles members only pricing in charcoal's online bookstore and more all of which makes the charcoal book club the best easiest and most exciting way to stay up to date with essential work in contemporary photography it's good to also see now on the roster uh, their own books starting to appear because obviously Charcoal have their own imprint, Charcoal Press. At least I think it's called Charcoal Press. I hope it is, but I'm sure they'll forgive me if I've got the name wrong. But anyway, the point is that uh, among the Charcoal Books, Book of the Month uh, list now are books from their own uh, imprint, which um, is very exciting to see that they're doing their own publishing. Anyway, uh, let me get on to this week's guest. No, let me say, um, please remember that there is a members-only edition that you can now sign up for, so you can effectively have a bit of small voice once a week, and at the same time, you would be supporting the ongoing production of this podcast by becoming a member at £5 a month, and you can do that at pod.fan to get exclusive additional bonus material available only to members what else uh leave a review on itunes no one ever does that anymore so maybe you've all done it or no one could be bothered that's fine whatever uh but it's nice to get a good review especially from uh, a country that i don't expect to have a lot of listeners in and i don't know just lets me know you're out there because who knows maybe you're not hopefully you're still listening get in touch if you are i'm going to introduce lottie davis this week's guest Lottie was born in Guildford in the United Kingdom in 1971. She grew up in... <clears throat> my voice, I think this is a hay fever thing. Okay, it's going to be like that this time of year. I don't know what else to tell you. Hang on, I'll have a sip of tea. 
Lottie Davis was born in Guildford in the UK in 1971. She grew up in Surrey and was educated in Alton and Godalming. After a degree in philosophy at St Andrews University in Scotland, she moved back to England to pursue a career in photography. She is currently based in Cornwall in the southwest of England. Lottie's unique style has been employed in a variety of contexts, including newspapers, glossy magazines, books and advertising. In recent years, she has developed her practice to employ moving image, audio text and interactive installation. This mixed media approach is crystallised in her long-term recent project, Quinn, finished uh, just this year or last year in 2020, and something we talk about fairly extensively. Her work has garnered international acclaim with the image Quince, which won first prize at the Taylor Wessing Photographic Portrait Awards in 2008 at the National Portrait Gallery in London, with Viola as Twins, which won the Photographic Art Award, the Arte Laguna Prize in Venice in 2011, and her collaboration on Dreams of Your Life with Hide and Seek and Film 4, which was BAFTA nominated in 2012. Lottie's work is concerned with stories and personal histories, the tales and myths we use to structure our lives. She takes inspiration from classical and modern painting, cinema and theatre, as well as the imaginary world of literature. She employs a deliberate reworking of our visual vocabulary, playing on our notions of nostalgia and visual conventions, with the intention of invoking a sense of recognition and narrative. Sandy Nairn, former director of the National Portrait Gallery in London, describes Lottie's work as brilliantly imaginative. And the book, Quinn, will be out very soon. If you want to order a copy, it's available at Mutton Row Books, the fabulously Dickensian name of uh, Lottie's imprint. So that's muttonrow.co.uk and have a look. You can pre-order it if it's not yet available. Here's the brilliant Lottie Davies. Where are you, Falmouth? Uh, Penryn, actually. Which is but like, just up from Falmouth, yeah. I'm at Falmouth University right now in Tutorial 2. And they've got a site in Penryn? Yes. Yeah, it's two campuses. Is that where you work? Yeah. Ah, cool, yeah, cool, yeah, cool. Yeah. So no, it's, the, it's a newish campus, been here maybe 10, 15 years. Mm. Um, and all the photography's up here and the film and um, performing arts and stuff like that. And the original yeah. campus, kind of the original Falmouth School of Art, is still down in Falmouth. Yeah, and you live in Penryn. I do, yeah. And you relocated there because you had this job, presumably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was working here for about, we think, two years, I think, doing quite a lot of commuting. Yeah, because you were Um, living in London. I was in London and then I was in Surrey. Um, Mm. And the team here um, said, you know, did I want a permanent job? And I said, I'm not ready to move to Cornwall yet. (laughs) And I did a year, it's coming up and down. And then I was like, actually, this place is great. It's lovely living here. I mean, I was looking at, I was looking at it on the, on the computer. And I was like, I always think the same things when I'm looking at these idyllic little places. And I'm like, oh, I get really kind of, you know, I get an, a yearning. Because I, I love London. But, I, you know, I just think, wow, Lottie lives in this beautiful place and it must be kind of idyllic. But then I, whenever I go... To those sorts of places I really enjoy it but then after like say I'm there for a weekend after a couple of days I get like pretty angsty and I get sort of yeah I don't know it's it's a weird experience I can't even really explain it what has been your experience of that transition from kind of city life to a much kind of quieter um, mm. sort of place oh, it was time it was time, you know, I did 20 years or so in London and I love it and I miss it. But um, 
it was just time time for something different and i you know i grew up in a small village um and i thought and i always thought i suppose at some point i might retire to cornwall <laughs> yeah and then the opportunity arose and a lot of it is actually because the team i work with are brilliant i absolutely love the people i work with and after 25 years of working on my own all the time it's a totally different energy and I really enjoy working with the team and doing things together. And actually, it was time for me to be doing something that wasn't just shooting. Mm. You know, I really love yeah. teaching. So mm. the transition kind of made sense. You know, if I weren't teaching and I didn't have, you know, the community of, of other creative people here, I wouldn't have come here. Yeah, of course. So it's more about the people than the place, but the place is, is a nice bonus, you know? Yeah. <laughs> smells looks, great down here. <laughs> yeah, it looks great. Yeah, it um, is. But also having a teaching gig is is a great thing because, you know, you've got some sort of sort of reliable income there and then you can focus on your personal projects, photography projects, you know, without having to, you know, maybe do this sort of mm -hmm. photography st paid work that you don't necessarily want to do. So it's a yep. kind of nice balance, I would guess. Anyway, again, I'm probably idealizing everything. It I love not having to do not having to chase every tiny little job just to pay rent. Mm. It is. It's. it's I, I feel incredibly lucky. It came at a, a the perfect time for me personally. Perfect time for uh, COVID. Um, yeah. I'm really, really lucky, and yeah, the pressure is taken off somewhat. I mean, I don't. I, you know, I work part time. Mm. Um, nobody gets paid loads in education. No, tell but, me about it. <laughs> um, but yes, it's. It means that I when I shoot, I, mean, I shoot a lot less, a lot less. Um, it's because I want to, you know, it's either I'll, on the rare occasion I might get some amazing commercial job, then clearly I'll go do it. And that's fun. And I love exercising my brain and, you know, coming up with that sort of how to do that kind of thing. Um, and personal work's totally different now mm. because I don't have to make work that is about trying to get a job. So I make yeah. work just because I want to. Yes. Yeah. The freedom is amazing. Also, okay. I'm lucky that I don't really want very much and I don't need very much. It's just me. I just need to make enough to keep me in a cat alive. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, yeah, yeah. You say it's luck. I suppose there's an element of luck, but you sort of make your own luck as well. And, you know, you've kind of created, a, uh, you know, that, that kind of opportunity for yourself in a way. Yeah. I think that's kind of you to say, but to be honest, I've never made a sensible decision about my career in my life. Everything has been entirely haphazard. I've mm. just kind of gone, oh, oh, I guess I'll do that now. You know, <laughs> I, no plan. Probably yeah. a mistake, but well, it's worked out all right so far. It's where should we start? I was thinking we should start with Quinn, which is your most recent project. Uh -huh. It's a big one, <laughs> and um, I guess you're sort of coming to, or come to the end of it. Maybe it's, it was it was about six years of of your time, but um, mm -hmm. I was going to read a, a description of it. The book's out, right? Oh, I was just going to show it to you. Yeah, it's not, yet, not, to... not, not yet it's not, but I've got copies so I could remind myself what it was I actually did. Uh, okay, so you, <laughs> you're, about, you're about to publish a book of you, the you, work. You and do your thing. No, it's fine. I mean, um, it, yeah, we, we should talk about it because it is quite wide-ranging. And, and um, yeah, the book, which, when's it coming out? Well, it was supposed to be out uh, last month, but um, next week, hopefully. Brilliant perfect timing then fingers crossed perfect timing. i didn't again i didn't plan it this way but it was just ideal that 
you know, we're, we're talking now then. Um, yeah, the, the, the book is kind of almost like the final stage in a process that has involved, you know, a huge variety of media and well you can tell us all about it but i was going to read because it was a uh, the description was a meditation on grief loss loneliness the human search for meaning and the possibility of redemption through time and asset so it's about everything basically you made a project about most things <laughs> so like where where are we going to start so yeah right so <laughs> describe what it is describe what the project is if you wouldn't mind to people who have um have not yet come across it in any form yeah um well it's fiction for a start mm. which i think people are generally quite surprised by and photography isn't known for its fictional output um no. so it is a fictional story about a young man um, called william henry quinn who is walking from the southwest of england to the north of scotland just post second world war um and it the work consists of large format stills, um, you know, moving image pieces. I don't call them films so much as they're kind of moving pictures, really. Um, objects, ephemera that, that I've collected, um, and a written narrative. Mm. So a diary, a putative diary written by the character. So the idea is that you read the diary or listen to it. Actually, that's also an option. Um, while looking at the pictures and looking at the film. So... Although the story is chronological, I hope that people can sort of dip in and out of it so that you can experience it in different ways. I mean, I kind of wanted it to be, this is really grandiose, but I really wanted to make something that was kind of like reading a book and going to the cinema and going to the theatre and going to an exhibition kind of all at the same time. And the book itself, to be honest, was very late in the process. Um, I hadn't thought of doing a book, really. Um because I wanted to make exhibitions and the book was kind of partly because I was persuaded to <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and partly because of lockdown I think that the exhibition the last exhibition that it, that showed was in Coventry at the Herbert um, Art Gallery Museum and that was meant to be up for four months and it had three weeks mm, okay and I thought it, it was great that it got up you know it could easily have just never happened but I felt rather I felt like I'd, I'd sort of shortchanged the audience, you know. So the book's been another way of um, making the making the work available in a different way. Sort of like it's like a, it's meant to be like a postable exhibition, if you follow me. Mm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So, but it's not really. It's a. It's the difficult thing is that it. Yes, it's about this character, but it's not really about him. Mm. He's just an example of a person who is going through a transition in his life and has been confronted with a life that he hadn't expected and Mm. how he comes to terms with that while walking. I mean, it's kind of a really basic thing to do, but Mm. um, walking for a very long time over the surface of the land and considering what happened to him and what he did and um, reading the, the diary tells the story of what happened beforehand. Mm. Yeah, because I, I hadn't come across the diary in the kind of formats that I was looking at it on, which is obviously mainly just on the, on my computer screen. So I, I, I came across the audio of him reading out the diary. And then I was like, ah, because I couldn't figure out how you got this kind of backstory in a way of who he is and what happened to him. Because clearly it's, it's directly in the aftermath of the Second World War. He is 
presumably traumatized in some way and you get that sense of it but yeah i mean obviously you had to think about all this stuff from the start because you had that ambition from the beginning that this was going to be a multimedia thing right yes i did but i didn't quite know what the story was and the reason that the diary is not kind of on the internet in a really obvious way is because um i want the the I can't show you it because it's going to arrive next Tuesday, apparently. Um, the printed version of the diary is really small. Mm. It's very, very thin paper. So I want it to be an intimate reading experience rather than reading on the screen. So it's a mm. very different way of interacting with the words, I suppose. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so what was the other question? Uh, well, no, but if someone was at the uh, actual kind of the, the installation, then h- how would they experience the diary that way? Well, it, it exists as a handwritten notebook. So in mm. the installation, um, in fact, all of them, there's a, a, a boarding house room with a bed and a chest of drawers and, you know, bits and pieces. And it's as if Quinn has just left the room. So his shoes are there and his socks and, you know, maybe he's just, mm. you know, popped out to get a glass of water or something. And his diary's on the bedside table and it's kind of handwritten in pencil. So you, I, much as audiences feel reluctant to do it, I try and persuade people to sit on the bed, mm. sit on the bed and pick it up and imagine that you're kind of in his space so you can read it then. But that's quite a long, I mean, it's not it's not a long piece of writing by any means, but quite a long time to sit in one place in an exhibition. Um, in Coventry, we had selected sentences and phrases from the diary in one of the rooms where the, the boarding house was installed. You would sit on the bed and the other three walls were entirely covered in very, very large um, vinyl lettering so key phrases from the diary would kind of shout at you and somewhere on the floor so but the what's been brilliant is that I've been allowed to install it in different ways depending on the space and depending on what's so Coventry was, was large was a large space so I could have a I could really play with it and as a photographer it's a bit weird but that was my favorite room because there was no <laughs> with no pictures in here <laughs> but, but I got to do my crazy installation and stuff um so you but you could also listen to it so um, in the book, there's actually a QR code that I hope people will discover. And then you can play Sam reading the diary mm. as you look at the pictures. So I'm hoping the sort of multiple ways kind of in. Yeah, yeah. So you do almost have to discover for yourself. You have to kind of, it's almost like you have to, yeah, you have to work a little bit to kind of get the backstory to find out what what's happened and, and all that. Yes. I mean, it's, it's like when you read a, you know, a book that um, you have to go the words you have to kind of go through the words things appear things appear mm-hmm. and you're like oh that thing i mean i hope yeah yeah you know the end of it with any luck i'm hoping people will will feel that they've they've got to know him and they understand what it was all about but i don't want to mm. i don't want to give away any of the no no exactly <laughs> any of the plot points. yeah let's not no no plot spoilers <laughs> but like how, how did this character come to be because you invented him previously right in a different context i'm just wondering like what the the kind of uh, genesis of the project was well um i had some work in a group show with laura noble way back and she asked me if i would do an artist talk and there was only if there were only a few pieces and they were from different projects and to be honest i was so bored of talking about memories and nightmares by that point i said could i do something else and she said, yeah, and I said, I want to, I'd like to do a performance with Sam. And I'd worked with Sam, Samuel J. Weir, who plays Quinn. I'd worked with him on a commercial job with uh, for Fortnum's some time back. He was very good at playing drunk. 
I was very impressed by that. Um, and then I'd worked with him again in another project, which was very sh- sort of short-lived, called Love Stories. And I said, Sam, would you be up for doing a performance? And he was like, yeah. So I wrote a short monologue for him. Um, and the character was called Quinn at that point, and he was from the same time. Um, and we got him a costume. I'm very into the costumes and the props and the details because for me, well, one, it's fun, but also you can really get embedded and, and working with actors, I love it. Actors, are, it's like, they're like magicians. It's mm. just the most amazing thing to see. And when you've written I know, some it's work... it's incredible, isn't it? They, they really can do these mm. very cool things that it's sort mm-hmm. of almost like a, a magic trick. It's, yeah, it's wonderful. So I just, so I wrote this and then, then Sam did the, uh, performed this monologue at the gallery and... I thought I want to do some more with this. So, and it's changed since then. Mm. You know, the basic is sort of, the foundation's the same, but the character changed quite a lot. And his story mm. sort of evolved as it went along, really. I didn't have it all fully formed by any means. Mm-mm. So, but what about these themes that you're exploring? How, like, what, what, how did those, were those sort of ideas that were bouncing around in your head that you wanted to look into? Or, because it's, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's some fairly kind of major stuff as we've already mentioned yeah um good question um when you wrote that initial hmm. little piece what we what was your kind of motivation for creating that character really good question um hmm. i have to think a bit sorry (laughs) (laughs) it's okay maybe you don't know no 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 i will it's kind of I look back and think how did that quite begin I'm not quite sure I think mm. um, I wanted to do more stuff with words that's definitely kind of was some of the motivation I wanted to do stuff with words and um, the idea of creating a character who could live was very exciting but I wasn't I've had no experience with this so it was definitely feeling my way as I kind of went along and I think the story evolved through it was a long period of time, what, six six years six years of shooting it and writing it but a lot of things were happening in the world at the time and there was a lot of stuff in the news about refugees coming over the Mediterranean and the Syrian conflict and I I felt like my head was full of people who were lost mm. and we were also in a big recession so and photography was being turned upside down and I was finding that very difficult that the respect for what we do seemed to be diminishing I found that very difficult to manage Um, and I felt that the future was unknown for everybody and that's very uncomfortable I mean of course that's standard right but it felt like so many things were going wrong (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I was just struck by pictures of of, of people walking with everything they have trying to find a a place trying to find a purpose or something find somewhere to to stop so this Mm -hmm. character sort of evolved from that that we started walking and I didn't know really where he was going and he didn't either but towards the end of it I was like okay he's going to Scotland and he's going to Orkney and that sort of evolved. And then the story about his experience before the walk evolved almost entirely after I'd finished shooting. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of why I was uh, curious about your relocation to, to down to Cornwall because there was a kind of echo of of your own experience there somehow. And I suppose there's always a bit of you in in the project, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, do you know you know Stuart Friedman? He had this. Yeah. He has this phrase. He said, "Eventually, we all photograph ourselves." Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's yeah, definitely. Like of course, of course, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of me in Quinn, but there's also a lot of my friends, my family. Um, my mother suffered a tragic loss three years ago and that definitely had that sort of came into it um it's an amalgam i think mm. so yes mm. of course there's some of me but and like a lot of your work seems to be sort of set in the past somehow i was wondering and this is obviously no exception i was wondering what why that kind of time period obviously the the significance of the second world war still looms large kind of thing in in the kind of history of of this country but a lot mm. of your work is kind of rooted in, you know, kind of these tableau that you create of past events. Mm. Why do you think that is? Um, I mean, it's actually quite conscious. Um, I set things in the past to attempt to make them more accessible because if you look at kind of, I don't know, costumes or settings and stuff like that, if, if Quinn were now, if it was a contemporary piece, what would he be wearing? Whatever he was wearing would be branded or not branded. And people would make many many more so more assumptions about his motivation his class his education uh the music he likes in all of those things i just don't want any of that it's mm. i need him to be as neutral and accessible as possible i want him to be you know working class or middle class or you know all of that mess all of that cultural mess that we have in this country i kind of wanted to get rid of it so that's why i i put things in the past in general but yeah. the, the post-Second World War was because I th- it's obviously a marker, but it's far enough away that there's very few people who will be looking at this work who have direct experience of it. And so it's sort of, um, aside from the sentimentality, which is frustrating, it's not meant to be about that, the kind of, you know, ridiculous sentimentality that we seem to have about, about World War Two. But it's about collective trauma. It's about collective trauma. And that is the, that's the last that we had in this country. And we're not very good at recognising that, you know, for us, wars are, wars are somewhere else, aren't they? All those conflicts. We're, but they're, they're constant. They're everywhere. Mm. But we're just not, we don't recognise that. Just like we don't recognise that we're immigrants if we go and live in Italy or France or Spain. Yeah, you know? True. Yeah, so, it's kind of a blind spot. So mm. it was partly that there are parallels contemporarily, you know, like today that you're you're sort of seeking to to make in a way with what's happening now um, as to yeah what he was kind of going through um, mm. and uh, this this notion of kind of feeling untethered in the world. I think was kind of something that you mm. you'd alluded to. I don't know if you've ever felt that yourself. I think I felt. I think a lot of it was the changes that were happening in photography. I trained by assisting. Um, I didn't study photography. I'd always kind of sort of found my way into where I was supposed to be. And I found that most of my skills were no longer needed and I'd only just started using them. So, yeah, I think in that way I felt that I just got started and then it just got really, really, really hard. And I was like, okay, really? Um, so yes, I think I, um, mm. I think untethered. The the word 
is more is not about me particularly i feel like that's more about um people who i know have lost people or have lost their homes or have you know literally had their homes bombed yeah i'm i'm pretty tethered you know yeah i I have i have a home to go to um my family are all fine um so i think it's more about imagining it's very hard to imagine but that's what i tried to do with queen is to imagine how one would manage that level of trauma Mm. and feeling that you had no nobody or and and no place to which you belonged Mm. and i that's that's the yeah and now, of course, we've got COVID thing. People are like, oh, that was totally prescient of you. Well, it certainly wasn't, obviously. But the whole world is now, it, there's before and after. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and that's definitely. the same with the Second World War, it's before and after. Yeah. I did working with, so Sam's an actor, obviously. Yeah. But you could have just almost had, there wasn't a lot of acting necessary. Although I did see a little bit of video where he was doing a bit of acting, you know, sort of responding uh, uh, <laughs> so, emotion. Sam, emotionally. Sam, yeah, you, Sam did a lot of acting with his back, and <laughs> he was very frustrated. Going, yeah, so he's just but, yeah, because actors they hate that when they don't get a chance to do some acting. Well, the thing is, the thing is, he is. It's just yeah. It's well, just I was going to say, like, yeah. <laughs> did he? Did he? Like, what was his con- his kind of contribution in a sense? Did he? Did he help you to sort of um, b- bring the character to life in your head, or did, or you know, like, in a sense, like I say, you could have just had a random person uh, who wasn't an actor walking through your frame and walking through those those landscapes. But uh, I'm just he wondering wouldn't, he wouldn't if it made a same. difference. Yeah, it definitely makes a difference. Actually, I mean, it's little stuff, and of course, he's still a lot of the time. But yeah, exactly. He's Queen, not doing anything. He's not doing anything. <laughs> Which is Sorry, what Sam. acting sometimes is, yeah, right? Yeah. No, but they, they say much that, harder. do less. It's much harder to do less. Well, the thing is, Quinn walks differently to Sam. That's he has a particular walk. Um, he has a particular way that he carries himself. And Sam and I talked a lot about what was going through Quinn's head at certain points. And we would, you know, so that, that affects the way that the character appears in the, in the images, even if it is just his back. Hmm. Um, in fact, if you look at the very last photograph, the very last still in the series, his his body language is totally different. That's interesting. Um, so there's a lot of um, a lot of thinking, a lot of sort of talking about him. And, and Sam would say, "So, so, how is he feeling today?" And we would talk about what particular things were going through his head. So it may may or may not be apparent, but a just a random person couldn't have done that. Actually, no, absolutely. That's what's that's that's why I love working with actors. Plus, yeah, he's yeah. fun. Sam, you yeah. know, walked all over the place, like literally walked miles and miles and miles, and helped carry the stupid, very heavy Manfrotto tripod. Not many people would do that either. <laughs> well, yeah. So you needed him for re- when it came to reading the the excerpts from the diary or the you know, the letters. That's true, um, and that's and not his accent. No, right, exactly. That's Quinn's yeah. accent. He can do the, he can do the accent. <laughs> but, yeah. like, was it a process of discovering the kind of British landscape for you? Because I, I'm wondering about whether you have a lot of familiarity with with your own country. I, I'm the sort of person who, you know, I just kind of realised looking at this work that I don't know England very well, really. Mm. And I haven't been to so many parts of it. And I'm wondering if, like, was it partly a kind of, I suppose there's partly an excuse for you to kind of explore a bit or are you the sort of person who's just traveled all over the place in in this country i've done quite a lot most of the places i knew already and some were recommended by friends um so i studied in scotland 
Right. Um, way back when. Um, yeah. and you did philosophy. I studied philosophy, yeah. <laughs> um, this is useful. Useful in, in a in a long term way. Um, yeah, I was being so I was being facetious, but actually, I, I, I don't see why. It, I, I know you do, <laughs> and I don't see why it can't be. You know, is, that, is it is it any less useful than fucking sociology or you know geography if you don't end up being a geographer? But you know, what I mean, it's like yeah, yeah, it's 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 kind of a yeah. Sorry, um, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's, fine. it's kind of a cliche. Yeah. It's a kind of a cliche to talk about. You know, to talk in those terms as far as uh, philosophy goes, but. But yeah, you, know, you you're not going to get a job with with philosophy. No, and and but, yeah, but that's that's not what it's about. It's about of kind not. of thinking. So and yes, it's 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 um, incredibly interesting, and I'm very pleased I got to do it. And it's sort of it sort of it has an effect on my on my artwork. Yes, it's definitely mm-hmm. in there. Um, but yeah, you don't get a job with it. So yeah, I, I guess. And also, I had a job for the Telegraph ever ago when I used to I used to photograph restaurants all over the country. So uh, there was a time when I knew every single service station. I think because I'd be like, right, okay, I'm going to go up the M6 and I'll stop at T Bay and then I'll go to this one. You know. Um, so I, yeah, I have quite a lot. And also, I, I um, I've been involved with a children's camping charity since I was God since I was a kid. Um, called Forest School Camps and we have sites all over the country. So I'm familiar with little pockets. So the, um, the scene that's in, uh, on the Yorkshire Moors, that's very close to a place where I've run quite a few camps, so I know that quite well. Um, and then there's bits that I didn't know. So um, Cheneval, which is way up in Westeros, was not somewhere that I'd been, but um, my very good friend suggested it and said, everybody needs to go to Cheneval once in their life. And it's four hours walk from the nearest road. Mm. <laughs> and my my it's in the north of Scotland. Yes, yeah, northwest. Mm. Um, and it's a it's a mission. It's a real mission. My yeah. my brother came with me. He also he plays the crofter. It's the the biggest the big shot. The kind of, well, when you see the book, there's a big fold out, double fold out, big kind of scene. And it's in November, so of course not much light. But we walked there, and had. Um, you know, camping stoves and stuff and got to this bothy when it was dark and had some food, went to sleep, got up at six, shot the thing and walked out again. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, yeah, it's a kind of combination. But a lot of the places mean something to me. So, but it looks like yeah. it was worth it because it's such an incredibly beautiful place. I mean, there's oh, parts of Scotland which are just, you know, as beautiful as anywhere. Westeros is just stunning. It is just the most beautiful place and it's kind of annoying that Game of Thrones have taken the name. <laughs> I was not aware of that. <laughs> Apparently, it is. I've not seen Game of Thrones, but most people go, "Oh, Westeros isn't that Game of Thrones?" I'm like, "No, no, 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 it's <laughs> no Scotland." Um, and Snowdon. So, Snowdon's a big thing. So my yeah. dad's, my father's family's from Snowdonia, and so Lovely. it was nice to have something on the yeah. top of Snowdon. Yeah. So, like, um, now I think you've got a show coming up of this work in London, haven't you? At some point, I do. It's really soon, and I need to go on it. Um, mm. <laughs> yeah, delayed twice. Um, well, yeah. actually, so originally it was going to go from Coventry to Oriel Colwyn in North Wales and then to London. And now it's doing London, opening on the 30th of June mm. at Gallery at Oxo on the South Bank. And it's only there for five days, really quick. Oh, okay. Really short. So very short. Yeah, really short. Um, but that's because I'm, it's, it's, I'm self-funding it. So, mm. you know, there's a limit to how much one can be indulgent. 
about hiring a gallery on yeah. the South Bank. Well, I was, I was, well, you know, I was wondering about the funding because this is a, this is quite a wide ranging project, and you must have like how have you like you obviously you covered a lot of the costs yourself, but having these kind of installations and and you're so incredibly kind of meticulous with recreating the kind of historic the historical period stuff, and and there's you know there's room sets and all there's all this stuff costs money, right? How have you managed to kind of um, fund it? Is it kind of from here and there? I'm generally skinned. <laughs> I spend so all my money. Like- That's the story of my life, seriously, is mm. that I never have any money because I spend it on making stuff. I've never had yeah. any funding. Um, mm. I'm no good at that stuff. You know, I mm. did try with um, Liz and Charlie, um, who were helping me. They, they, um, they were my connection for the Coventry show. And Coventry did um, pay me a fee, but um, kind of enough just to sort of cover stuff. Um, so no, I, I don't make any money out of this. It's just mm. costs, it costs a fortune. But then it's kind of, if I can, if I've got enough of my overdraft left to live on and to feed the cat, then I'm kind of okay. And that's, mm. that's it's a stupid way to live, but that's always the way it's been, I'm afraid. So mm. yeah, basically. Uh, because you've always done these sort of fictional kind of um, uh, arrangements. I was don't know what word I, was, I, I use the word tableau before i don't even know if that's the right word I, I use all kinds of words that i actually don't really fully know the meaning of but um <laughs> so, you know pictures uh, made, made up pictures scenes yeah yeah narrative yeah, yeah. stuff and um, and um yeah and they're, and they're quite they're quite intricate and you know you've obviously put a lot of work into them and i guess that you know in a way it's like your background as someone who started out as assisting uh, I guess some of the stuff you, you, you kind of learned doing that stood you in good stead because all that kind of nuts and bolts, kind of boring stuff that you have to be able to do, the kind of logistics and the creating of the thing before you actually get to put put a camera in front of it and press a button. Is that something that you learned to do in that phase? Um, yes, I think so. I mean, I guess... I seem to be kind of organised. But yes, I learned production when I was assisting, especially when I was assisting full-time. Um, but also I, I directed a, a play when I was at St Andrews. Um, and that taught me about, um, I guess, organising a set and stuff like that and working with actors and that kind of thing. But mostly just being organised, I think. Um, mm. But yes, I can, I can produce. And I'm, mm. I, I, I learned a lot when I was assisting about where you might find something. So, to, for instance, I did a shot where I, I needed a wolf. So I knew where to get <laughs> yeah. a wolf from. <laughs> yeah. You seem but, to be quite good at getting babies as well. They can't be that easy to get, get hold of. I'm just going <laughs> to yeah. plug my power in, but yeah, keep yeah, yeah. talking. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, mm, babies. Well, I worked with um, a guy called Matt Harris for a, maybe a couple of years. Lovely guy, commercial photographer. Um, did lots of advertising and worked with babies a lot. So I learned a lot from him how to work with children and how to make it fun. But I, yeah, mostly you kind of say, who's pregnant? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Is anybody about to have one? And wait. So, yeah. Well, this, the shot I did a shot for the Crisis Commission a while back and I needed a newborn baby. It's called, the shot's called My Mother Was Born in a Bucket. Mm. Um, it was a, a, a commission um, about looking at the notion of home. And of course, I had to make it difficult for myself by requiring a newborn baby and a bucket and costumes and shot it in Scotland. Oh, nice. But the way I did that, actually, was like, how do I find a baby in a place that I don't know? But actually, the, the, um, 
I called Dumfries Royal Infirmary and spoke to the head midwife. And she helped me by kind of putting it out to, to her midwives and they found some people mm. who were willing. So actually, yeah, it's just a bit of time. A lot of it's time. There's most of the work involved in all of these things is the preparation. The shoot itself is very short. Mm-mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now you've brought it up, can you please explain how your mum was born in a bucket? And <laughs> is that really true? It really is. Well, she was born, <laughs> she was born in 1944. Um, and... She was, I'm trying to think now. So my granddad was off at the war and, and she, was, she was born in a bucket in a dining room because there was a, some large, I think it was a large house that had been converted into a, into a hospital. And she was born in the middle of the night and it was a bit unexpected. So they grabbed a bucket. <laughs> <laughs> my God. <laughs> ah, yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> and, like what, what, the other one you did, the other... Um, well, you've already alluded to it because you were saying that you were sick of talking to it, uh, talking about it at one point. But you did um, nightmares and memories and nightmares was the other one that you did, which was um, yeah, you won the Taylor Wessing for one of the images from that series, the, the portrait prize, which I don't think you particularly expected to do, did you? <laughs> I didn't even know there was a prize when I entered it, which I know yeah. is ludicrous, right? But then everybody just just entered it. I mean, I suppose people still do. I'm not allowed to anymore. But it was just every year you entered the Taylor Wessing. And before that, it was the Schweppes. And so I just entered it. And I'd got a shot in the year before of um, a, a, a portrait I'd made in, in Maun in Botswana. Um, so I was like, well, I just enter it then. Yeah, I was totally, totally taken aback. I had no idea. They called me up to, uh, to say I was shortlisted. And I was in Sainsbury's car park in Angel. If I remember it really clearly, I was sitting in my car going. And they're like, so can you talk to the press? And I'm like, yeah okay <laughs> and then i looked <laughs> up and went oh shit there's a prize and i <laughs> right, yeah right. totally yeah, yeah yeah what was it like though like what were the changes that kind of came about as a result well um all of a sudden i was an artist and yeah i've spent years being frustrated and angry about this weird distinction between being a photographer and being an artist because i can't see why a photographer is not an artist you know, mm. bothers me a lot. You don't call, you know, you don't call a sculptor an artist who uses sculpture as their medium. Mm. But that's for another, that's for another conversation. Um, no, 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 it's not. It's for this conversation. Are you sure? I, okay. Because yeah. it Let's really do it. pisses me off. I know. It's so snobbish and, and infuriating and, and like, who the, who the fuck do you think you are telling me that my work has now become art? Mm. So mm. that. Um, so there's a kind of uh, still a kind of prevailing attitude that photography somehow isn't a proper art form. Mm-hmm. Is that how you yeah. sort of perceive it? Yeah. yeah, not in this, not in America, but here, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's not painting, is it? Right. Just press a button. Yeah. Yes, I do. All I do is press a fucking button. You nutty. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But but then there there are photographers who actually don't con- don't you know are quite happy not to consider themselves as artists. So you know, photography being a broad church. You well, know, sure, but are... it doesn't. Why? Why? Uh, of course. So yeah. I'd be. I was perfectly happy with the word photographer. Mm, right. Mm. I didn't need to be called an artist or for that whatever the elevation that that came with that. And I was like, I'm a photographer. I was a photographer yesterday. I'm a photographer now. Did you want to buy one of my photographs? Okay, to put it on a wall great mm. fine so uh, yeah I, I it's it's a mad snobbery but it, it's it does seem to be really quite pervasive 
in this country mm. and um also yeah, along with the fact that i do writing like oh you you wrote that right yeah. yeah i wrote it why is writing somehow more clever than taking the pictures mm. you know it, i know it's just people don't really know what we do and they assume it's easy especially mm. with digital they really assume it's easy um so yeah exactly it's what i was going to say i wonder if things have been improved but i imagine it's if anything it's going the other way because way worse way worse everyone's got a phone camera and yeah an instagram account yeah i mean i didn't think even about that i I think that's part of it i'm mm, yeah i'm not quite sure actually it does seem to be in some ways getting worse but then also maybe people are becoming more educated about it because it's so um accessible you know, everybody knows that just because you have a keyboard, you're not a writer, mm. but everybody can put some words down. So, you know, I, it changes, doesn't it? But it was a thing that bothered me a lot of the time. And this sudden elevation um, meant that a lot of my clients suddenly disappeared, oh, which right. I really wasn't expecting. Um, because, yeah, so there's a kind of unexpected downside in a way, because you sort of somehow transitioned from being a kind of jobbing photographer to something yeah uh on a higher plane maybe they think that you're therefore no longer available commercially or something no idea but it was um a, a real it well it was slow i didn't realize because it's not like everybody calls you up every week is it you know but my regular time so i was like hang on i haven't heard from them for a year and yes apparently people thought that i would be not interested too busy too expensive um or whatever you know, or, oh, now I was doing what I'd always wanted to do and I'd only be, ever been slumming it by doing work. And I really missed it because <laughs> yeah. I like doing work. I love the challenge of being kind of given a brief and then you, you know, do it well. That's the job. Yeah. So, yeah, that was an unexpected thing. But, you know, in lots of ways, it's not all bad. You know, I, I um, was represented by Eric Frank for quite some time. and He's quite an impressive, impressive man. Um, mm. Took my work to, to Paris and New York and... Um, I got to make more. I couldn't. I wouldn't have been able to finish the series if I hadn't won the prize money, because those shots were stupid expensive. So yeah, I bet. yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's like I just, everything's been really haphazard. It just something came along, and I was like, okay, what do I do with it now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Looking back though, I wish that I had known that people would perceive me differently by winning it, because I didn't perceive myself as any different. But there was a see change in what the world thought I was and that had implications that I wasn't prepared for so yeah because you mentioned writing and you did a you were doing a column at one point for a professional photographer magazine do you miss doing that yeah I do I do it was really fun and it was really fun to rant in public (laughs) yeah that's basically what a column is isn't it yeah I got to say what I really think um no they were great as the editor Emma Lilly was brilliant she really let me say whatever I wanted and didn't sub me um the first thing I I said was was, how do you feel about (laughs) printing the word fuck (laughs) because I am unfortunately notoriously sweary yeah yeah Um, (laughs) um it was really fun and I'd say what was really great about working for that magazine was I got to interview people I got to interview loads of people I would just go oh who do I really want to know about and Mm. that's the perfect license to go tell me about what you do um just like actually the camera is the is a opens doors right Mm -hmm. you know you've got a camera and you you can go to places that you would never go to otherwise having the I'm writing a feature interview could I do it on you is a 
is is a really great way to to talk to people whose work you admire and then you find totally. out that they're kind of a bit like you and then they become yeah, friends yeah, human. Gives you well, yeah but yeah. also slightly less intimidated now by all those brilliant people who i, who I interviewed yeah of course so, yeah because you realize that everyone's basically just a person right exactly yeah. exactly but yeah i mean yes mm. uh. But like, which were the which were the most kind of memorable or controversial of your columns then? Because you you did like you say you did take the opportunity to have a bit of a of a rant. What were the ones that caused the most waves? Do I don't know actually because people didn't tell me. There was one called Photo Book Fails, <laughs> and the kind of stand first was, "Can we please stop making photo books that are shit just because it's nice to have a book?" <laughs> as, as you you're about to launch your oh yeah, now I'm about to do a book, right? I'm hoping it's not shit though. Um, yeah, of course. Uh, Which well, begs the question. I mean, it's a, it, you know, ultimately it is a fairly subjective um, yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, also, I mean, you know, you don't want to write anything boring, do you? Um, oh, absolutely. But I think yeah. that's an important question. I mean, yeah. you know, we talk a lot about photo books on this yeah. podcast and in, in the photography world generally. And, and um, you know, now that w- there is the option to, to, to crowdfund them and stuff, I suppose, you know, you can make your own decision as the photographer as to whether you want to do one, mm. you don't have the kind of gatekeeper of the publisher, you know, as the sort of quality control. But then again, that is, in itself is, it's probably a good thing because, you know, in a way it's like their opinions no more valid than anyone else's as, as to whether your book is worthy of, of publication or a book is worthy of publication. No, I think, I think, I, I think there's, there's the hang, that's part of the reason it took me a really long time to be persuaded to make a book because I didn't want it to be some self-indulgent thing. I was like, actually, is it going to be any good? I don't know. I can't. Mm. We're terrible judges of our own work. You know, I was like, if I'm going to do it, I better feel that it's good. Um, I think there's, there's that still there's a hangover from when publishers did fund it. So having a book somehow proves that you've made it in some way. Mm. So there's a huge attraction for having your work in printed form. But I think that's, sort of more a uh, sort of sentimental thing rather than a real thing now so the temptation is 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 un- i'm not saying all photo books are bad i think some of them are bad though hmm. and i think some of them like are, are, can just be a bit like van- just vanity vanity publishing you know the hmm. same with writing a novel so um i think I t- not and not every work not every photography work is suited to being in a book you know, that was my concern with Quinn is actually I don't think it's a book. I think it's an exhibition. So, well, yeah, yeah. you very much conceived it that way from the start, and, you know, right even from the word go. Exactly. Um, yeah. No, the column was hilarious, though. I mean, I really kind of. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is one. There was, can, you, can you tell which one's about ranking? Oh, God. Now, what was that one? Tell me. <laughs> you, have to, you have to look for yourself. <clears throat> okay. Well, we got, you've got a few examples on your website uh-huh. at LottieDavies.com. People can have a look at yeah. those. But yeah, it looks like you had fun doing that. I did. Yeah, I did. It was, it was a nice thing to do. I mean, you know, writing is, writing's hard. I find <laughs> writing very difficult, but very, very satisfying. Yeah, So exactly. I think it was, I don't know who it was, possibly Dorothy Parker. I think maybe not somebody else who said, um, I hate writing, but I love having written. Yeah, and yeah, I'm yeah. definitely, um, yeah, that yeah. Feels, that feels Dorothy very true. Parker. Yeah, and there's another. I don't know who said this one, but it was like, um, your your writing's easy. You just open a vein and it drips out one word at a time. Oh, you know? <laughs> I don't know who said that, but yeah, that's kind of how it feels sometimes. Yeah, yeah. 
it's definitely not. But easy, like, so but with with mm. the with the Quinn book, like, what were the challenges then? Because you you know you had to sort of somehow figure out a way to you know get all these different um, elements that you had conceived from the start with a multimedia project, but then put it on a mm. on a page. Did it did it work out kind of as you know the way that you wanted it in the end? Um, well, I think the key for me was I've always been very clear. I am not a designer. I can use InDesign as a piece of software, but I am absolutely not a designer. So I didn't even think about trying to do that myself. Um, so I guess I talked to uh, Gordon McDonald of Ghost, he of previous of Ghost Books, and said, because I was... I, so, so my friend Craig, Craig Easton, said, you should do a book. And I'm like, really? I'm not sure. So it's all his fault. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, I'll talk, I said to Gordon, I said can I get your advice? He said, so I've got this project. Do you think it could be a book? And he's like, yeah, why not? I'm like, well, like, you know, uh, and he said, no, no, it could be a book. I'm like, okay. So now I need a designer. And I had, I didn't have a terribly good experience with a few designers with different things in the past. So he, he said, well, you need the right designer. And I said, could you help me? <laughs> um, and he recommended Dean Pavitt, who uh, we got on like a house on fire. And I just had a chat with him and he looked at the work and we talked about it for quite a long time. And I said, you, you come up with whatever thing you think works. And he came up with some really great ideas that of course I'd never thought of because I'm not a designer. So I was constantly kind of delighted and surprised by how he managed to bring all the different elements in. And we you know, collaborated a little bit insofar that I would say, you know, actually that feels a little bit too, too much could we maybe kind of, you know, pull that back a bit? But, um, yeah, if you're going to do a book, get a good designer and get somebody who really understands your work. That's what I loved, actually, about working with Dean is that he spent a lot of time just thinking about it, getting yeah. to know, understanding it, asking me what it was about, rather than making assumptions based on the photographs or based on the, you know, the pieces themselves. So, mm. yeah. Um, just remind reminded me of something else because you mentioned Craig Easton and he was talk he was on as you know a couple of weeks ago yeah. <laughs> and um, he was talking about your six phases of the creative process uh, which <laughs> which, which I nicked from the share. internet which I nicked from you, the internet yeah. <laughs> okay so yeah we're, we're not claiming that you originated yeah. okay this, good good but um, do you remember what they are because I'd like you to share them with my listeners. Oh okay. Well actually it's one of my article one of my columns was about this. Yeah. I might have to look it up just time give me two secs. Um I have it. I have it right on my desktop because I like to share it with students occasionally. Okay. Yeah. I I've got it but I have you, you might as well okay. come from I have you, it you right well here. I have you. it right here. Okay. So <laughs> well a caveat that the British audience doesn't get any further than number 5. Okay, is that but, right? But the rest of the world can get to number get, six. Get to six. Yeah, yeah. yeah. See, okay, that's so. incredibly important because actually, you know, before you go ahead, um, when Craig tried to sort of remember it when he came on, because it was on, it was on our little extra bonus questions that I do for my members feed. Uh, he only remembered five. So, funnily enough, he only went to number five, which is again probably because he's you know British. Yeah. And uh, just number six just disappears from your kind of consciousness. But we're going to get we're going to get the full. What's the full six? Okay, okay. The creative process one. This is awesome. Two. This is tricky. Three. This is shit. Four. I'm shit. Five. This might be okay. And then six. This is awesome. <laughs> 
<laughs> but mostly yeah. I just get people hover around between three and five, you know, at yeah. the end. Um, and kind of yeah. Some people are are at four all the time. That's the problem. Yeah, and it's because it's the the work and yourself is the same thing. That's the mm. problem. So if you feel like your work's this, like yeah, trying to trying to kind of get past four to five is really hard, and that's at the end of it as well. A lot of the time, it's really towards the end of a project where you think I've just spent forever doing this and I'm shit, and it's just like you can't get beyond it. But Mm. I think you know what British people. If we can aspire to, it might be okay. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. You know, any further yeah. than that, it's impossible. This <laughs> might be okay. Well, what about six? Could be this is okay. Yeah. yeah. So you've lost the you've lost the equivocation, but it's still only okay. <laughs> yeah. There's no question of getting to this is awesome. <laughs> so that, <laughs> that's how it should be for the yeah, Brits. Yeah. This is this is okay. This is all right. This is. Okay. This is. It's okay. It's all right. And it's funny, talking about photo books, because I was thinking about, you know, I was talking to Paul Graham and he was saying, you know, most photo books, they're not all that good, but that's okay. You know, I quite like that sense that not everything has to be, you know, like the the new, everyone, I think, aspires to make the the next, uh, the Americans, you know, or something. and. Clearly, nearly everyone's going to fall short of that of that goal, but that's okay. Yeah. If you make a photo book that's you know a certain number of people like, then yeah, sure, I, yeah. I mean, I guess you're picking me up again on saying we don't make shit photo books. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can, I think that if that, I think it, I think it depends on why you want to make it and why you want to make a thing. And if you make a thing and you're happy with it, then it's not shit, is it? You know. But actually, I think sometimes the pressure to make something because everybody else is. Or because that's what you need to have done at this point in your career or this point in your life. Or, oh, you haven't done this. People, haven't you got a book out? I'm like, no, I haven't done a book. Sorry. Mm. Why, is that a, why is that a necessary part of my career? It wasn't for, yeah. And now that I, now that I, now that I almost do, I don't consider my, it's just, a, it's another, it's another part of, of a thing. It's not. Yeah. 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 Now, I guess it feels now that you can sort of put a full stop at the end of, of Quinn, right? Because that's ultimately you've got to have a sense that it's finished. It'll be finished once the show in North Wales is done. So right. um, London and then Oriel Colwyn with brilliant Paul Sampson at the, in, um, in Colwyn Bay. He's got some great plans um, um, <laughs> in October. And then okay. it'll be done. Then it'll be done. I'm going to... Yeah, and yeah, and it's about time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. You got to feel a sense that uh, what, 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 anything you're sort of working on, or any plans for the next thing. Now that, and I know that's it's like you know, give me a chance, kind of thing. But some some people go from one from one thing to another fairly yeah. seamlessly. I'm wondering if you're. I'm pretty slow. I'm I'm not exactly prolific. Um, I think. I suspect, I hope, by the time it comes round to October, that I will have an idea of what I want to do next. I have kind of little, little ideas. I want to combine more writing again, but Mm. probably in a different way. Um, I don't think I want to do anything that's that's quite so long in coming to fruition. I've also, I tend to do small projects in between big ones. So something that's maybe just, you know, a few months. But no, Mm. I don't really have plans and... uh, 
I feel quite remiss that I do not have plans, but better no plans than a rubbish one because I've done. I've had a lot of rubbish plans that I've wasted time and money on because I felt I had to do something. So, Mm-mm. well, I was just thinking about like some of the stuff because you have been like you say little projects and then uh, maybe they commissioned them. Some of them are commissioned things rather than kind of stuff that's come out, come from you. But you've done, you did a couple of, you were kind of kept yourself busy during the whole COVID thing. You did uh, the, the little empathy museum yeah. project, which, um, which is on your website. Uh. Can you just explain what that was briefly? Yeah, well, um, it was a commission, which was great, because mm. I, I found the whole lockdown thing creatively devastating, actually. I just did, yeah. I had and no... Commercially, no, too, for most people. Well, I mean, right, the idea yes. that you'd get yeah. a COVID-related oh, sure. project, right? you know, I guess is the most one can hope for. Yeah, and, but also I was teaching, we, you know, I've been teaching, there hasn't been a, a break. We've just, we were, in terms of university stuff, I, I was pretty much full-time um so no it was lovely and it was actually because a friend of mine who i was at university with in fact um works with the empathy museum and, and called me up and asked me if i'd be involved it was no, it was lovely it was i got to travel around taking photographs of nurses mm. um there were portraits the project, portraits mm-hmm. and also um their objects objects that they chose and i'm very interested in in objects and the and the psychological weight objects could have which obviously you can tell from Quinn, you know, the various yeah, objects. Yeah, well, I was going to say, yeah. there's an echo of that, because mm. you, did, you did photograph uh, some objects for Quinn uh, as part of that project. Yeah. And I, but I think you chose to do that in black and white for that project. Yeah, um, not quite sure why, to be honest. Um, yes, I think possibly to make them slightly removed. Mm-hmm. But I do like that um, in the installations you can hold them. Depending, yeah. depending on, the, on, the, you know, on the venue. But I like the idea that people could actually pick them up and hold them. So Quinn's pen knife, for instance, is quite heavy. Mm. And it's a genuine World War II Army issue pen knife with a Marlin spike, mm. which you don't get anymore. Um, yeah. So there's something about those things, yes. And I, I, there was definitely an echo of that in the Empathy Museum project because the original brief was to photograph people with, with things that meant, that, that somehow symbolised their experience through the first COVID um, months. And I, I said, well, what if they're really big? What if somebody's object is a car and then somebody else's object is, I don't know, a teacup? So I suggested that we do them separately. Um, also because I wanted to... Um, I didn't want the objects to detract from people's faces. And because I didn't know what... we None of us knew what the objects were going to be. And I wanted to be able to make the series consistent because I wanted people to, to literally look in, in the faces. That was kind of what was important to me about that project was to really mm. see people's faces. And again, the uh, the Embassy Museum made recordings of these people so you can listen to their voice, talk about their experience while looking at their face. And I didn't want objects to be distracting. Right, right, yeah, because then you can have a sort of consistency to the to the way that the portraits are. Yeah, well, you know, like yeah, the style that I that I decided to do. I mean, the other photographers in the project um, did environmental pro- portraits, which are beautiful. But it just I, I, I wanted to do something different because I've, I, I've spent you know, years doing environmental portraits and I'm not sure I'm terribly good at it. <laughs> so really? I wanted to do something that was, that was a bit different. Because like, at one point, like, I guess early on, you sort of, I think initially, I suppose, before you sort of discovered your sort of forte for doing these fictionalised sort of uh, narratives, did you have an experience of trying to do straight reportage or straight documentary photography at the beginning of your of your trajectory 
Um, I would have liked to have done. That was definitely an aspiration. But because I didn't know where photography was when I kind of mm. I graduated, came back down to England, was like, right, I better be in London then. I had to learn to type to make a living. Um, I ended up in advertising agencies as a, sec- as a, as a secretary. Um, so I didn't know anything was. And then I, you know, I worked in hire studios. I was like, ah, oh, there's photography there. One of my neighbours turned out worked in a higher studio so I followed him so again not really knowing anything about anything um I should have studied photography probably or worked in a newspaper and then I could have done documentary work but so I kind of did and some of my early travel stuff and some of my writing so the stories I did in in Botswana and Guatemala and Burma and that kind of thing I did a a project on the Thai Burmese border which I know is called Myanmar depends on they called it Burma the people I talked to um Mm. Um, so yeah I did loads of different things I shot food for seven years because I kind of ended I just by chance really was commissioned to work on this restaurant review column for the Telegraph with Jan Moyer and did that for seven years which was great for income and interesting and all the rest of it but I never really wanted to be a food photographer but I needed to make money so and then I did portraits a lot I worked with, you know, Red Magazine, Sainsbury's Magazine, those kind of things, you know, contract publishers. And then I did travel, which was brilliant. Always wanted to do travel photography, so I did quite a lot of travel with Lonely Planet, Lonely Planet Traveller magazine. But you had a real kind of spectrum of experience, Mm. like I suppose as a lot of people do, you know, almost like a sort of little taster menu of each different (laughs) uh, genre. Yeah. And then (laughs) when did you kind of, what was your first aha moment when you started constructing images you know like the, was there a sort of particular mm. project that kicked it all off for you because you've you know you've kind of consistently been working in that way um, for some time it was so I did a couple of books with Gary Rhodes who was an absolutely charming man and sadly he died was it last year I think incredibly young I hadn't, um, hadn't even remembered that he died to be yeah, honest yeah 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 um, he was a chef he was TV chef. Just for people who... Exactly. TV chef is... TV chef chef. here in the UK, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, So because of my restaurant work, um, the the columns that were... I'd I'd photographed one of Gary's restaurants and we'd got on and I'd been really quick. (laughs) Like, that's what he liked. I was really quick. I'm like, yes, chef. No, chef. Yes, chef. So, and I did a couple of books with him and the second one, um, the first one, I think I took the feeds from that and went to Botswana and started to try to do... I kind of my version of, of some kind of documentary work which um, I think I was probably better at the writing than I was at the pictures but anyway that was fascinating but I realised there was absolutely no way that I could do that like because it would just cost me a fortune and I, I couldn't give the stories away the stuff I wanted to do and I had no I had no education in it no way um, and so the second book I was like right what am I going to do with this how am I get what what should I be doing next I've now got an opportunity, I've got some money, I should use it. And I realised that all the technical stuff, skills that I'd learned assisting, none of them were evident in any of any of my work. So I thought, well, that'll be a thing. Um, perhaps I should think more about doing using those skills. And I decided that my, my very first memory, my earliest memory, was running down a corridor to see my mother the day that my brother was born. And this was stuck in my head. And somehow that became a picture that was like okay that is the picture I want to make so I made that and it grew well actually it wasn't even the first one I made I thought that could be a thing 
so then I asked a lot of other people and said, you know, could you tell me what your your earliest memory was? And I got totally fascinated by it. You know, these mad mad things that people remember. Um, mm-hmm. And then and then somebody gave me a nightmare. Um, she she said, you know, my earliest, my earliest memory is really boring, but I'm going to give you a nightmare. And I was like, not so that's I a great example of how yeah, <laughs> it's like one little kind of random comment almost can can sort of touch make a can open a project out in some way that you hadn't an, anticipated mm. and then that suddenly brought the, the nightmares into the equation yeah. as well yeah and it was just i i i did the ones that gave me a picture so i would read these stories and if one if it gave me a picture in my head i would then make it that was the mm-hmm. thing and of course i i you know um the interesting thing is that you'll never know what they were really like because even the you know the child's memory isn't clear but people describe them in the present tense is fascinating you know, I am standing in, you know, the hallway. My father yeah. is behind me or whatever. And mine was, I am running. I'm running down a corridor. My dad's behind me. And I saw a rocking horse in a waiting room. I thought it was a playroom because I was two and a half. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, I, yeah. and, and my dad said, he remembers it. Apparently I was, I was shouting as I ran going, I'm going to see my mummy <laughs> in little red shoes, shouting with my little red hair. So at least you had some corroboration in a way that That's your, true. your yeah. dad sort of remembered it as well. So I guess yeah. some people don't have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then you did that love stories thing. But did, mm. was that one of the ones that you were sort of alluding to that didn't actually, you didn't sort of fully I only uh, did, finish it? Yeah, I did three pieces. Um, mm. And I ran out of money. Yeah. They were yeah. getting more and more complicated. They were, I got some wonderful stories. But most of them, most people tend to meet when there's other people around. So that mm. meant crowds. <laughs> That's a lot. More budget. That's a lot of budget. Um, And yeah, I did the ones that I did. I was really pleased with, but I just had to just say, you know what? I can't throw thousands of pounds. I don't have at this right now. Mm. So, so it's just the three. But yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll start up again. We'll see. Come back to it. Yeah, Yeah. maybe. Mm. All right, Lottie. Well, look. Thank you so much for talking to me. It's been really nice to catch up with you. Mm. Um, Really, it was really enjoyable to sort of get immersed in Quinn albeit merely on the screen which I know is not the way it's supposed to be uh, experienced but um, here I am sitting in Stoke Newington with uh, you know no option to do anything else can't even uh-huh. can't even look at the book because it's not actually out yet but it's uh, it's, t- it's at least it gave me a pretty good idea of of it and um you know when it's at the Ox Hotel hopefully I'll be able to get down there and and, mm. and see it properly and then um eventually get a chance to see the book but thanks for chatting with me and uh, we're going to do these Pleasure. bonus questions if that's mm. all right with yeah, you yeah yeah mm-hmm. I am prepared. <laughs> <laughs>